0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 31 through 34 today. As you're turning there, let me uh, make mention that we hope to have had a, uh, our choir present their Christmas music this afternoon. Um, But uh, due to uh, sickness and some uh, of those kinds of things, we've had to reschedule. And as you know, trying to reschedule something this this time of year with everything else that's going on is uh, very difficult. But uh, we have uh, planned to have the choir uh, present their Christmas music this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And uh, so we invite you, if you can, if you uh, invite you to come back out and, and be a part of that. I'm very thankful to God for Jim Castlin and uh, just the goodness of God that he has uh, been in our church at this particular season, that he could step in and lead our choir and uh, for uh, in the absence of a minister of, of worship and and uh, speaking of that your your church the church voted unanimously to call Clay Smith to be our minister of worship and uh, so he will be here in January and we look forward uh, to having him but we're thankful for Jim and Ben and Will Bishop uh, uh, others who have uh, been a part of our, our, our worship ministry in the in this gap time Uh, So we turn now to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, and this uh, great text here before us this morning. Apostle Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, Who is I- indeed is interceding for us. Just a, another prayer. Lord, again, we, we thank you. We, we, we know that what we're doing in these moments are is so important lord the gathering of your people each week in, in worship and we know lord how much we need to hear from you um, so we pray lord that your word by your spirit would speak uh, to us lord what we need to hear today for you to do that good and pleasing work in our lives of transforming us to be like Jesus. And so, Lord, may in these moments we set aside anything that might be distracting us and anything that might be causing uh, some of that mental energy to go away that we might just be able to have ears to hear, to see the great significance of of who we are celebrating this Christmas season and all that he has done for us. And we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've made uh, the comparison several times in our our study of Romans over the past several months that, uh, in in particular here in chapter 8, that it is like ascending this beautiful uh, mountain peak... Uh, We've gone from one glorious truth to another and uh, from having now no condemnation for those in Christ in verse 1 to being indwelt by the Holy Spirit to having been adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ, becoming heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ uh, to a glory that Paul tells us that no suffering can compare or take away. And then we reached what seemed like and felt like a summit in verses 28 29 and 30 last week what an incredible text and uh, we could have stayed there at that summit and just looked and gazed for several more weeks uh, with all of the incredible glories and truth that is revealed there the glories of the providence of god and in verse 28 how he works all things together for good Uh, The glories of the purposes of God, verses 29 and, and through 30, about a salvation that Paul says actually began in eternity past with God having foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. In other words, God reshaping us at every turn to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. And His desire for us in all of this is to that we would know that our salvation is built on this divine foundation. And the the assurance of our salvation uh, is built on this solid foundation of Christ, that if Christ is in us, we are eternally saved, eternally secure. And, And the scope and depth of that, all that's involved in that is breathtaking. And it certainly anticipates Paul's response at the end of chapter 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And we say amen to that. Well, perhaps we think that even Paul has said all that needs to be said at this point. And there's certainly a little bit of that spirit when he writes that in verse 31 when he says, What then shall we say to all these things? In other words, what, what is there left to say in, in all of this glorious truth? What could be added to this amazing gospel that paul has been describing that phrase these things what shall we say to these things could refer to the matters that he's just talked about in chapter 8 but i think more likely refer to everything that he's been saying about the gospel all the way back to chapter 1. these things it's a, it's a powerful gospel the power of god for salvation to those who believe what more can we say to these things we might think there's nothing more to be said but paul Paul has more to say, and he answers his own question there with at least five more questions to which there are no answers. And and there's a particular beauty in doing this and what Paul is doing. Stott explains it like this. Paul hurls them, hurls these questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. And he challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, on earth, in hell, to answer these questions and to deny the truth with which they contain. But here, Stott writes, there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. No one, nothing can undo the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so if we're to grasp the significance of each of these questions, um, we need to think about why they are unanswerable, why they don't have an answer. And Paul tells us why even has he asked these uh, questions. And so I want to run through them, at least four of them, four out of the five questions this morning uh, that he asked. Steve Lawson puts a label on each of them to help us to distinguish the question. And I'm simply going to use his uh, distinguishing uh, characteristics here. The first question he calls the opposition question. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? No answer. If, if Paul, the, the way that he asks this question is really important because if Paul simply were to ask the question, "Who is against us?" Oh my, we'd have quite a list, right, church? I mean, if you ask the question that way, there's a lot that, that could be and that's hardly an unanswerable question. I mean anybody can look down to verse 35 and you could see quite a bit of a list of things that we could mention there are things that we would say would be against us, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Um, we could even go back to chapter 7. We could talk about the, the power of indwelling sin as, as well that lives. And, and let's be honest, uh, death is still our enemy, even though it has been defeated by Jesus and the resurrection. It has not been destroyed. We could say that death is still an enemy to us. The same is true of our accuser, the devil. And uh, and then we could probably add a few more there as well about who might be against us. There are plenty of things that are against us. But Paul doesn't ask that question in that way, does he? What does he say? He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's a remarkably different question, isn't it? And the if that is there by Paul is not meaning to introduce any kind of doubt, but rather certainty. You could translate it even since God is for us, who could be against us? That changes everything, doesn't it? Because who can stand against God? Does anybody have an answer for that this morning? Who could stand against God? You're God, Christian. The one who foreknew you, he says in verse 29, who set his love on you before you loved him, who predestined you to be in his family, to have the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, the God who called you, the God who justified you, the God who is going to glorify you, who can possibly stand against you. Or if we reframed it, Lloyd-Jones did this beautifully. He said, is there any conceivable power that can prevent God's saving purposes from being fulfilled in your life? There's not any, church. There's not any. This is an amazing assurance for us that in Christ we can say God is for us. He's for. And we should pause there and think about this. This is a good place to remind ourselves again that these promises are for believers, aren't they? For Christians. Not everyone can say God is for them. Not everyone can say, or we put it even plainer, God is not for everyone. That's shocking talk, isn't it? But it's true. And it ought to give us great pause as we think about these things. Some of the most terrifying words in the Bible are the flip side of this verse, where, uh, where God said things like, I am against you. I'm against you, not for you, against you. Many times in the Old Testament, God said that uh, concerning the Assyrian people through the prophet Nahum, uh, to the people of Babylon uh, through Jeremiah, uh, to Egypt, Tyre, Sidon through Ezekiel. In, in the uh, Old Testament prophecy of Nahum, chapter 2, verse 13, God says this about the people of Nineveh. God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. I'm against you. And listen to how Nahum describes God right before this in chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies in the darkness. The Bible is so clear that for those who are not repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, God is not for you, but against you. And the reason I say that today is not to be harsh. That's still terrible to say that. No, that's not the reason at all I'm saying that. I'm saying that because the Scripture also calls you to believe on Jesus Christ, who is your only hope for salvation. You cannot stand against this God. You will have your moments here where you may shake your fist at Him, where you may resist, where you may think that you are your own Savior. You will not stand in His judgment. You cannot, and I say that in love, and I say that pleading with you to take refuge in Jesus Christ, His Son. He is your only hope. Only those who have can say that God is for us. What a truth, church. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's a blessed assurance that we have in Christ. Secondly, notice the provision question. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things now once again paul could have simply said will will god not graciously give us all things and 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 if he said it that way we might hedge a little bit and say well you know i don't know i mean everything we probably think of several things that we need and, and maybe even start to wonder whether god really will give us and supply all of these things to us. I mean, he's given us a lot to be for sure about that, but all things? I mean, if we just said it that way. But notice again how Paul asked this question and why it's unanswerable, because he points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. He reminds us that the God whom we are asking this question of whether or not he will give us all things is in fact the God who has already given us his only son, Jesus Christ. And if God did that for us, sending his son to die in our place, is there anything else that we could think of that God would withhold from us that would be for our good? How crucial this is to our assurance of salvation because our country is littered with false. Uh, prosperity gospel kind of preachers who tell us that if you really want to know whether God is for you or not, then you just need to look at how things are going in your life, your circumstances, and whether you're having material and monetary kinds of blessings and blessings in your church because that's how you know whether God is for you or or not because that makes it really clear. What, What an insecure basis for knowing whether or not God is for you. Because, what do you do when things begin to fall apart in your life? And they will. What do you do when things stop going well? What do you do when trials come? Because they will. When living your faith gets hard and when your health begins to fail. How are you ever going to be sure that God is for you, that He'll graciously give you all that you need? Here's what you do, church you go to the cross. And you go back to it over and over again every day because we need to. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What a wonderful truth. Think of that. God the Father did not spare his own son, it says, but he gave himself up for us. Literally handed him over. To death for us. He delivered him over. The God who didn't even spare his own son, he says. He did this for us. Gave him over for us. How is he not going to provide for you? We sing this truth to ourselves sometimes. and wish we could have worked a lot more songs in today. And and maybe even this one. but, But we sing this. And when I think that God his son not sparing the very word here right send him to die I scarce can take it in but on my cross on on the cross my my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin and then you sit down and take a nap right no then sings my soul what causes my soul to sing because things are going well in my life No, because I feel good about things? No, what causes my soul to sing? It's thinking about what He has done for me. Since God has continued and done all of this for us, will He not continue to provide for us? That's Paul's statement. That's what Paul is saying. Will He not make good on all of His promises to us if He's already given us his, His Son? Will He not give us strength to overcome temptation? Will will he not uh, be with us in the dark and uncertain places in life? Will he ever leave us or forsake us? Will he not comfort us in our losses? Will he not be with us in the hour of death and the death of our loved ones? Will not God meet all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus? He absolutely will. John Stott put it so well, the cross proves God's generosity. He will graciously give us all things. The third unanswerable question is uh, what we might just call the prosecution question. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This question and the next one kind of imagines us to be in a court of law, and uh, Paul is asking whether, is there someone who might exist somewhere to accuse us? And if we stop reading there again, and we think, is there anybody to accuse us? Well, of course, we would think there's all kinds of things that accuse us. Our own consciences accuse us, don't they? is it your conscience? accuse you you're not good enough to be called a Christian Uh, uh, look you just blew it again how could you possibly think you're among God's elect the way you live your life and how short you fall and then there are there are human adversaries that uh, that are in our past that love to (laughs) to criticize, right, and uh, to charge us. And, and, and then th- th- on top of that, there is the devil whom Revelation 12.10 calls the accuser of the brother, uh, brothers. And the devil never ceases to bring charges against us. I mean, and we hear his whispers. You hear them, don't you? What do you mean God is for you? He's not for you. Have you looked at your life? Look okay, at what a terrible sinner you are. What do you mean, nobody? Is there anybody that can bring a, a charge against you? You say that you're forgiven. How will you ever stand in the judgment? And on and on, he shoots his arrows of doubt. There is an interesting scene in the, the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And uh, the high priest at that time was Joshua, not to be confused of Joshua in the book of Joshua, but just the high priest in this time of Zechariah named Joshua. And he has a vision, and uh, he's standing in the temple preparing to present the sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people. And uh, as he's in this vision, standing there, Satan is also there, and he is accusing the high priest Joshua... And Joshua is pictured as dressed in these filthy... Here is the high priest of God, and he's pictured as dressed in these filthy clothes, symbolizing his own sinfulness... Here's a man that's getting ready to go in and offer sacrifices for the sins of all God's people. Satan is there pointing to him and saying, look, you think you're going in to do that? Look at how, look at your sin. And the devil is arguing that Joshua is unfit for his office because he's a sinner. It just so happens in the vision, though, there is someone else there with Joshua. He is the angel of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, is not this, is not Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire. And in that moment, we're told that his filthy clothes are removed and he's given these pure vestments, these rich garments, symbolizing that his sins indeed have been cleansed, that atonement has been made. And it's been made through the work of God, the work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Who could accuse Joshua now? Who could charge him now? Beloved, the same thing has happened to those of you who are in Christ. We are literally like branches that have been plucked from the fires of judgment. We deserve to be in there, and God in his grace has plucked us out at the last moment by the grace of God. This God who foreknew us and predestined us and called us, this same God also justified us. He declared us righteous in Christ. And if the highest court of the universe has declared you righteous in Christ, who is there left to accuse you today? You see, it's an unanswerable question. Not one person said anything, right? It's unanswerable. There's no one. Oh, they'll try They'll try, and the the devil will try, but they'll be like arrows bouncing off of a shield. Listen to Isaiah 50. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? There is no one that can if you are in Jesus Christ. The fourth question is similar, but it goes beyond the accusation to the condemnation. Verse 34, who is to condemn me? And once again, if we stop there, we'd say, well, there's all kinds of people, critics and detractors and enemies and the devil and all these things. But, but, but all of their attempts to condemn will fail because of what verse 34 says. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who is there to condemn? There's no one. Why? First of all, because Jesus died for us. He died for us. He died for the very sins that deservingly led to condemnation. He took the condemnation for us. That's why verse 1 And 3 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, it says. But there's more, Paul says, verse 34, more than that. What else did He do? He was raised for us. He was raised by the Father. Father as uh, uh, demonstrating that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place. God accepted that, and he, he was able to propitiate for our sins, turning his back on, on wrath, crediting us with righteousness, crediting us with salvation, giving us eternal life. More than that, there's something else, he says. Thirdly, Jesus is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What a picture. Meaning that Jesus is there right now, at the right hand of God, in this moment, standing between us and God, claiming us. Pleading the efficacy of his blood for our sins to show that we are saved. And Paul says, who in the universe could possibly condemn you if that's true? We could issue a call that would go out through the whole universe. Any inhabitant, any person, any demon, anyone. Who is he that condemns? No one. There's a fifth question, but it seems like Paul gives special attention to that, and so we'll look at it next week. Um, but let's just think about for a moment why these are here, these five unanswerable questions. They're not ob- arbitrary because they tell, us, they, te- they tell us about the God whom we believe in. And they tell us something about the salvation, the certainty of our salvation in Him. We have a God who promises to work together all things for good for those who love Him, who are called by Him. And this God has been working from eternity past to conform us to the image of His Son, to bring us into His family. And our salvation is just as indestructible as this eternal God is. Because no one and nothing can keep us from his saving purposes. You see, when that truth grips your mind, Sinclair Ferguson calls it gospel logic. When that truth grips your mind and that gospel logic, if you will, begins to take hold of your life, that God has done all of this for you. That he is for you. That he has sacrificed his very son for you. That he has justified you and declared you righteous from this time forth and forevermore. Like branches plucked from the fires of his judgment. That there is no one who can condemn you before God next week. No one and nothing that can separate you from his love. When that begins to take hold of you, all of that is left is, is to praise his name, isn't it, church? And you think that this is maybe an odd Christmas sermon today, Pastor. I don't know. <clears throat> it's really not that odd if you think about it, because this is, again, the reason why we're rejoicing this Christmas season. Amen. It's not because of some kind of cheap sentimentalism. It's not because, while well, everything's all decorated up, and it's so pretty, and it makes me feel really good inside, and I like all of it. And And enjoy all those things. It's not not just the beautiful sounding music and all of those things. It's not that we're here to look at our own experiences and talk about how well things are all going in our lives and how great we're doing in our spiritual walks and all of these different things. We're not here to rely on our emotions, which are constantly changing. We're not even here to rely or to celebrate the strength or the size of our faith. We are here and we sing and worship at Christmas time because of the object of our faith, the greatness of Jesus Christ. And all that He has done for us. And when it comes right down to it, we're, we're thinking, I, I can't I I can't think of anything to thank myself for. That's exactly right. It's all of God. His rock, solid, indestructible, saving purposes and promises for our lives and how this fuels our longing for him and our living for him. Then sings my soul, it says, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Oh, Lord, help us to see it. Father, thank you for these amazing words. Again, your word, I pray that they would take deep root in our hearts and lives. As we think about God and his son not sparing, send him to die. Lord, make our souls sing at the glory of who you are and all that you've done. And I do pray for those who might be here who who would say today, you know, I, I've, Jesus is not my Savior. I, I've, I've not turned from my sins and, and I'm not trusting in him and following him. Lord, may the the truth of this passage, Lord, and by Your Spirit, Lord, convict them to turn to this amazing, glorious Savior who has done all of this. And, And so, Lord, we pray that You would save them today. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast.